You're listening to audio from Praxis Church Kelowna. Praxis is a new church plant that exists to follow Jesus and make him known. If you're interested in finding out more or joining us in person, go to praxischurch.ca. Our reading this morning comes from Genesis 26, 1 to 22. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and will bless you for you and to your offspring. I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he feared to say, My wife, thinking, Lest the men of the, man of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of the window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she's your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled their earth with all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the waters, the wells of the water and been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given him. But when Isaac's servant dug in the valley and found there a well with spring of water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So we called the name of the well Esek, because they contended with him. And they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So we called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Good to see you back. Some of you came back after last week. It's encouraging. Um, yeah, I'm going to pray, and we'll get going here. Um, Lord, I just thank you for this time of worship this morning where we can come and reflect on the gift of salvation given to us in Christ applied to our hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit. And we now, as we open the word, which you spoke through men as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, that you've preserved by the Holy Spirit for our instruction. We pray that um, the Holy Spirit would come and do the work that only he can do, applying it to our hearts. I'm incapable of that task. So I need your empowerment forward as well. And as we open this, we pray that you would be made much of, that your son would be glorified. And we pray in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Um, If you were with us last week, we were looking at Genesis 25 and discussing this topic of how faith is passed down generationally. So we looked there at kind of a case study of, of three generations of faith and talked about how it gets passed down from one to this, the next. And we're, we're, we're at this point, we're at this transition point where we've looked at Abraham for a long while. We've spent a couple of months looking at the life of Abraham, and now we're transitioning into his um, generations, those who came after him. Last week we saw this, um, we began talking about Isaac, but 
what we need to know is that all of his offspring get a lot less time in the book than um, playtime than he did. Isaac here, for example, um, we saw a couple chapters ago in chapter 24, he's born, and then they go about looking for a wife for him. Last week, he's mentioned kind of just a little bit um, discussion of Esau and Jacob coming from him. And then next week, chapter 27, Esau is already passing on, or sorry, Isaac's already passing on, and all of his life is contained essentially to this one chapter that we're looking at today, I, um, Genesis chapter 26. It's like a greatest hit album of, of Isaac's life here. The author of the book of Genesis has pulled together his whole life and put it together in a very condensed version and in a summary of sorts so that I think we can, we can compare and contrast it with the life of Abraham. His father who came before him, we're still on this topic of generations. And so we're going we're gonna to be able to compare and contrast both Isaac and Abraham through some of the, the, the stories that we're going to look at and that are presented here. And we're going we're gonna to take a look at three things, three big ideas that come to the surface as we, as we look at this chapter. We're going to see this. We're going to see we face fim, um, similar situations as those who've come before us. We have similar tendencies as those who have come before us. And then thirdly and finally, where we spend the bulk of our time, is that we have a similar task. We actually have the same task as those who've come before us. If you have one of our notebooks, hopefully you got one on the way in, great place to keep notes, um, additional study resources. We give these out because they're great tools to help you dive into the text, maybe um, find your way through scripture throughout the week. But if you are a note taker and you're taking notes, this is the framework. This is how I'm going to approach the text this morning as we take a look at it. And a couple of interesting notes here before we dive into verse 1. Um, this story that we're going to read presented here um, after the story of Esau and Jacob's birth isn't necessarily chronological. So we left off in chapter 25 reading about their births. Um, it's not as if it just picks up right after. A lot of commentators have noted here, as you look at it, it, it almost seems like it's kind of the whole life condensed together. And they, they think this because we don't say Esau or Jacob in this text. And so whether it is or it isn't, what I think we're seeing is a con kind of condensed version of Isaac's life for the purpose of us being able to parallel and contrast with the life of Abraham. And what we're going to see as we dig into chapter 26 is a lot of language, situations, and the such that have come up earlier on in the series, if you've been with us. The very first of them is right on the nose. It's in verse 1. Take a look with me. It says this, Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. So there was a famine in the land. We've seen that language before. If you were with us in Genesis 12, God called Abraham out of the land of Haran. He comes to the promised land. Right away, when he gets there, there's a famine. And um, so we're seeing this language come up again. Abraham faces a famine, or a, a famine, pardon me. That would be a great story. Um, he faces a famine, and he heads south into Egypt. This is the very first event in the faith journey that we see of Abraham, and now we're being told it's the very first story and situation that Isaac faces in his faith journey as well. They're, they're both facing famine, which kind of leads into the first point that I've already put up there on the screen. We face similar situations as the generations that come before us. Both Isaac and Abraham faced a famine. When we think famine, think cost of living increase, grocery prices going up, housing inaffordability, that sort of thing, recession. It's getting hard to live where he is, so he decides he's going to head out to Egypt. And, you know, we do similar things here today. Anyone else in the middle of COVID think, I'm moving to Central America? Anyone? Let's be honest here, okay? Yeah, Central America, where the governments aren't corrupt, and the economy is, is booming, and, and nothing's bad, right? This is what we think, though, in the moment. Oh, that will be better over there. Sometimes we're so impacted by our situations that we leave thinking it'll be better over there. I quoted my wise friend, Yaku, before, who told me, sometimes the grass is greener on the other side of the fence because there's more manure there. There's a famine. 
Isaac's headed to Egypt, just like his father Abraham. But then verse 2 tells us this. The Lord appeared to him and said, don't go down to Egypt, dwell in the land, I shall tell you. God tells him not to go. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. And for to you and your offspring, I will give, um, I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. So the blessing of Abraham is, is on you. Stay where you are. Because if they were to go, well, they, you know, in their heads, they might think they're moving towards more flourishing. In actuality, they're moving away from God's plan. They're moving away from the place God's intentionally placed them. And we face situations like this all the time today that tempt us in very similar ways where we think purely pragmatically, purely practical, it makes sense that I go over there. And when we do so, it can move us, even though it looks good on paper, it can move us away from the plan of God. We get lured away by a promise of more stuff and easier living and more square footage, but sometimes danger comes with that as well. Sometimes you get more square footage, but you also get a darker spiritual reality. We know man doesn't live by bread alone or square footage alone or automobiles alone or bank accounts alone. But every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So we want to be as close to the will of God as we can be. We need to see that the important thing is not affordability. It's whether where we God or are where God wants us to be. Here's what I think this text is showing us. Generationally, we face a lot of the same things. Just as Isaac faced the uh, same situations his father Abraham faced, many of the things that we are facing are things that those who've come before us have faced. Same thing today. Um, mortgage rates, economic downturns, food prices, transportation costs, tax things, the things that we might equivocate as like famine in the land. This has been faced before. Early 80s, mortgage rates spiked to 18%. Now we're complaining over six, right? 18%. You can't say to me like, okay, boomer, I'm not a boomer, okay? I'm just, I'm looking at the facts here, and a lot of the things we face have come before, and often the times, the things that we face that we think are unprecedented and new, if we look backwards, they've happened before. Ecclesiastes speaks to this. It says, what has been done will be again, or sorry, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. So not only does Isaac face the same things that his father faced, though, he, he behaves in the same way his father did. He's facing similar situations. And this leads us in, into our second point. We have similar tendencies as we face these reoccurring patterns. So not only do the things keep happening, the way we react to them kind of keeps happening as well. We face similar situations and we tend to respond in similar ways, but God wants to do something in our generations. He wants to bring change. He wants to help us not repeat the sins of the, our father. And, and we see this happening um, in this text here. Take a look again at verse two. So he's about to head out to Egypt, just like his dad did. And God comes and says, do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land in which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land. I'll be with you. I will bless you. I'll give this to your offspring. And I'll establish the oath that I swore to your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And will give your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. We've unpacked that blessing, that promise that was given to Abraham before. But here we're seeing it applied back to him. And so... This strikes me because as soon as there's a famine, Abraham says, I gotta go down to Egypt. I gotta leave the land that's promised to me. I gotta go down and find some food. But now the Lord comes and interrupts Isaac as he's about to do the same thing. And he says this line, which is so good Sojourn here and I will be with you. And if God isn't there, you don't wanna be there. There might be all of the opportunities in the world, but if God isn't present, in our place, we don't want to be here. So Isaac doesn't go to Egypt. He, he, he stays put in the land, and he settles in a place called Gerar, which has come up before. Um, the Bible nerds in the room, 
maybe this word, this place is triggering. Back to Genesis 20, um, we read about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. After Abraham came up from that event, he settled in Gerar. He's been there before. This place, Gerar, it's within the the boundaries of what was called the promised land, the, the land that God had promised him. So he goes there, but that place has a king. It, it has a people. There's someone ruling over it. Isaac comes again, repeats the situation of his father. He goes to Gerar. And as we read, we're going to see he encounters a similar situation, and he behaves in a very similar way. It says this, so Isaac settled in Gerar, When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, Ah, she's my sister. We've heard that before. For he feared to say, This is my wife, thinking, Lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, the brave knight in shining armor. Same tendencies. Same way of dealing with opposition as his father. And we saw Abraham do this two times. Go to a different place and say, You know, this is my sister. But... In many ways, it's, it's worse, with, worse with Isaac. I mean, Sarah was Abraham's sister, which is weird. But Rebecca isn't Isaac's sister. She's his cousin, which is also weird <laughs> and still illegal. But he's lying. He, and, and in some ways, it's worse because Abraham was like twisting the truth. Abraham, or Isaac's completely manufacturing a lie because he's a coward. He has the same tendencies as his father, which is... How it tends to go. We inherit patterns from those who come before us. Anyone, um, you've probably said this. I know I have. You know, I'm not going to be anything like my parents. Anyone said that before? Yeah, okay. Like this, you kind of, as you're leaving home, it's really easy to be, I'm going to be so different than my parents. And then your 20s happens, right? And you start to go, oh man, I'm a, I'm a lot like my parents. I've inherited a lot of those ways. I always tell people in premarital counseling, look at how the other person's family interacts. The way your wife's mom talks to her husband is probably a lot of her default mode of how she's going to talk to you. How you see him acting towards his wife is probably a lot of the way he's going to treat you. Because we repeat things. Because we've inherited things from those who come before us. And this only gets more pronounced as you have kids, right parents? You start to see this. You do things that were like those really core memories where you're like, I'm never going to do that with my kids. And then you do it and you're like, I'm just like my parents. I had a couple of these moments this week where I did something and, or acted in a way that was, just reminded me of my childhood so much. And the thing that I said I'd never do, I had to go to my kids and just repent and say, I'm, I'm sorry, girls. I failed to reflect our Heavenly Father to you, which is my job, is to be a picture of Him. And, and you know what? This was a thing that I saw as a kid that I hated, and I hate so much that I just did the same thing. But if we never acknowledge these things. We're never going to defeat them. If you, don't, you can't defeat what you don't define. We're a lot more like our parents and, um, than we might ever realize. And Isaac here, he, he, he's showing this to us. It's, we read on in verse 8, it says, When he'd been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of the window. He saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. And um, so he called Isaac and said, Behold, she's your wife. How could you say she's my sister? Behold, or Isaac said to him, because I thought, lest I die because of her. He looks out and he sees them laughing, which this isn't her laughing at his new joke he's constructed. This, I think what we could, how we could read this is like there's flirty giggling going on in, in such a way that when he looks out, Abimelech thinks that's not the way a brother and sister interact or first cousins either. There's something going on here that's, doesn't meet, <laughs> doesn't look like it should. And we might wonder, like, why is this in here? What's this story for? Well, it's for us, but I think one of the keys to properly understanding this is we need to remember this story, this book, 
of Genesis. It's written to the Israelites as they're taking possession of the promised land. So they've just come out of 400 and so years of captivity. They're about to take possession of this land where this story's happening. And I think God has included it because as they're about to take possession of this land, they're about to, t- to take possession of land already possessed by people, just as Gerar was already possessed by a king and a people. And the same tendencies that Abe and Isaac had are probably present in their progeny four or five generations later. They're probably facing the same tendencies. One, because they have the same sin nature. Secondly, because they've descended from the same sinful people. God is wanting to warn the Israelites of their forefathers' mistakes. He wants them to not fall into the same errors. He wants them to not try to make peace with the people who presently occupy the land. He wants them to stand on the promise that the land is theirs and not get usurped into the culture around them. But in order to do this, they had to, they had to not do the same things as all the people who before them had done. And the same is true for us today. If we want to fully partake of all that is given to us through Christ, everything that is available to us, we need to continually be putting off old things in order to put on new ways. We need to put off these old inherited patterns in order that we might put on new ones. And and again, we can't change issues that we don't identify. We will not passively default into new holy ways of living. That's not the way default, at least my default. That's not where I default to. We're called to newness and we're called to new ways. And that involves putting off. Uh, uh, Ephesians speaks to this, Ephesians 4. It says, put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Put off and put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. But it's important to note, you cannot put off things that you don't identify. You can't put off the old self if you don't identify. And so with this, just the scripture up on the screen here for a minute, if you look at it, I want to ask you two questions. All of us, and myself included, what do we need to put off? We've all inherited generational defaults, ways of doing things just like Isaac. What do we need to put off? And secondly, what new pattern would you want to put on in its place? Neither will take place if we don't intentionally identify that. The good news of Jesus is this, is that Christ died to take care of all that separated us from God. He's made us the people of God, but furthermore, we're now children of God. In Christ, we're adopted into a new family, and we're given a new father, and we're called to learn the ways of our new family. We're called to become like our new father. We're called to become godly, and the the gospel offers us this hope that we will become this, that we can become this. Why? Because our salvation comes along with a power pack. Our our salvation comes with batteries, the Holy Spirit within us, who's helping us put to death the deeds of our flesh that we might put on this new nature. And in this room, there, there is testimonies of this, where generational patterns have been broken, generations of alcoholism, laziness, anger, generations of dodging responsibility, passive masculinity, adultery, selfishness, cowardice. There's testimonies of those family lines being hijacked by the gospel and the transformative power of the Holy Spirit coming and beginning something new. I think what Genesis 26 is showing us is that God wants to work a transformational story. God's God is doing this. He comes and he stops this pattern. And it also gives us hope because God's God's blessing on his people, what we're seeing, isn't dependent on their actions. Isaac's a mess up just like his father. The people God uses to extend his blessing into the world with are, you know, sister-marrying, cousin-loving, cowardly sinners. But it's not dependent on them. 
God doesn't bless them because of their faithfulness. God blesses them because of his faithfulness. And this blessing, as it comes into their life, transforms Abe. It transforms Isaacs. God's blessing is on them, not because of their good works, but it's in them in order to transform them. Furthermore, it's in them in order that it would bless and transform them, but it would flow out of them and bless those around them. If God's blessing is directed to us, it's it's directed to us so that it could be, it could flow out of us, so that we're blessed to be a blessing. God stopped Isaac here from going to Egypt because he has a purpose where he has him. Take a look at this. We're going to read it, but this is going to lead us right into our third point here. We've said we face similar situations, we have similar tendencies, but we're called to the same task. God doesn't allow them to go to Egypt because he's got something for them where they are. It's here in verse 12. So it says this, Isaac sowed in that land. What land? The land that he promised him. And he reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And and the, the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. Isaac sows and he reaps a hundredfold. That's a, that's a lot in a place that has a famine. Um, this idea of the blessing of God and, and some of this language of a hundredfold, it gets, it gets abused a little bit in the church. So I just want to kind of, in a parenthesis, address this for a second. In many instances, the Lord um, does bless people very financially and materially. We also learn in the scriptures that sometimes people are blessed. You think of the New Testament church, they're blessed, but it doesn't come along with all of this. It actually comes along with persecution. And, and there's kind of two errors that we often fall into with how we think about money. On one side, some would think, you know, we're blessed, so we should be financially rich. Others think, you know, we should shun all forms of materialism. It's all bad. We should be poor, the richer evil. We can fall off one side of the horse or the other. On, on one side, this is sort of the, the, the Benny Hinn, Joel Osteen, health and wealth prosperity crowd. You know, if you're God's, whatever you sow, you're going to reap a hundredfold. On the other side is an equal error. Okay, there's an error here, health and wealth prosperity. The other side is actually called ancient Gnosticism. It's this belief that Wealth is evil. Everything material is evil. We're spiritual beings, so we should shun all material. Everything material is evil. But we talked about this last week. The problem is we're both physical and spiritual. We're physical and spiritual beings. Physical is not evil. See, when Christ returns, we're going to dwell on earth for eternity, spiritual beings in a physical body. It's going to recreate all of this. We're both physical. And so we might get blessed physically in this world. We might not. Actually, the New Testament speaks to this. Peter comes to him and he goes, okay, so we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus replies, and he uses some of the language here from Genesis 26. Truly I say to you, there's none who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold, he's using the language of Genesis 26, who will not receive a hundredfold when? Well, in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and lands, but with persecutions. So is there a blessing here? Yeah, but anything we get blessed with here, there's, there's something against it. There's persecution that will come with it. So you might not get blessed physically here. The ultimate hope is this. In the age to come, we will be blessed a hundredfold with eternal life. So, parenthesis complete here. God blesses Isaac, gives him riches. I don't think this is assuring us that we're going to be blessed with ludicrous earthly riches or a jet or anything of the such. But God does provide He does take care of his own. He does bless them. There is countless scriptures to to this end. God provides for his own, and it's often through this blessing on his people that the people around will begin to see and actually acknowledge God. Now, that might be because, 
you know, our, the physical blessings that we have, but in an even greater way, it's through the blessing of God, of salvation unpacking in our generational lines of salvation and the gospel coming and transforming our lives in a way that points others to the gospel. And if you drop down to verse 28 in this text, you'll see that um, <clears throat> God blesses Isaac and the nations come up to him and they say, well, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. How? Because he's blessed. So we're blessed to testify to God and so that we could be a blessing. We're blessed not just to live like ballers, but so that we can point other people to Christ so that we can point future generations to Christ. We're blessed to be a blessing now in our own lives to others around us and also for future generations. But we need to see that often with this blessing of God on our lives comes opposition. We'll see this, verse 14. He's blessed, and then it says, um, Isaac had possessions and flocks and herds and, and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. They, so they stopped and filled the earth and all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us. You're much mightier than we are. The culture doesn't like to see the people of God flourishing because scripture tells us apart from the Holy Spirit doing a work in us, we're actually opponents of God. We're not neutral, we're opposed to God. So they come. Isaac departed from there and he, he, he went to Gerar. He settled there. So this land that God told him to stay in, this place where the famine was happening and Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham, and he gave them the names that his father had given them. So I really want us to pay attention to these couple verses, and I want to park here for a little bit. The story tells us um, there were wells here that had been dug by Abraham, but the, the culture around them surrounded them and, and filled them in. And the question is why? Why is the culture coming and filling in these wells? Because they're opposed to God. Because they're opposed to those who follow him. The, the only reason life could survive in this place was through these wells. But because they'd been dug by Abraham, because they benefited the people of God, really because they were dug by Abraham himself, they came and they filled them in. They dumped rubbish down them. They filled them and they rejected him. Them And when Isaac comes into the land, he knows what he has to do. He has to redig these ancient wells. He needs to dig down deep in order to build an environment that will sustain both him and the generations that would come after him. And I want to draw our attention to this. I want to make a connection right here between the work Isaac did and the work that the followers of God are called to do today. Digging ancient wells. As I dug into this text this week, I spent a couple hours just thinking on this idea and, and started to see some correlation between this and the culture that we live in today. And, and a correlation between what Isaac does and what I think the task of every single Christian living and alive today is. I'm going to speak allegorically in a sense, but as I dug into this and I went and looked at the commentators, what I found is that I'm not the first to draw these lines of comparison what I'm getting at. I believe the Christian church faces a similar situation to Isaac. The Philistines have filled in the ancient wells with earth and rubbish and refuse. We've inherited a land that was founded and built on these ancient wells that the culture who's now built upon them has filled in. And part of the reason, you know, the famine in the land that we might witness Today is because these wells have been filled in. Perhaps some of the things that make us want to run away and live in Central America or another community or another country or wherever it is you want to go, perhaps the things that make us want to act like Isaac and run to Egypt exist because we've allowed these ancient wells to be filled in. The cultural conviction today is this, is it not? Is it the way forward is by rejecting everything that was. 
We need to do away with everything that was because it's confining. We need to do away with those dogmatic ideologies and, and break free of them. That's the way forward. I might make the argument of the alternate that the way forward is actually backward. These ancient sources of truth, these ancient wells, these deep unseen rivers are the thing that actually made our land habitable. They allowed us to flourish. They sustained us. What we can often fail to see is that when we do, we do away with these ancient wells, famine ensues, both spiritual and physical famine. And the, and the Christian church today faces a very similar situation to Isaac. The Philistines have filled in the ancient wells with earth and rubbish and refuge and ideologies and, and the such. The Philistines have blocked up our ancient wells with material thrown on top that lies now between the people of God and, and those who aren't the people of God and the access to this, this water, to speak metaphorically. And in many cases, the material that's been thrown down the well is actually accepted by the church. The thing that's blocking the water is stuff that the church has actually come to accept and sometimes even rejoice over. But just as in the time of Isaac, our country was built on these ancient wells. Our government, our education system, our social system, they're founded upon Christian principles. Actually, if anyone been to Parliament in Ottawa? A couple? If you stand there, every time I go, I've got to go a bunch. You can stand, you go to the East Arch of Parliament, Written on it is Psalm 72, 8. And it says this, May he have dominion from sea to sea. That's the foundation of our country. It's on the peace arch. That's the foundation. But that ancient well has been covered up. The foundation was God's supremacy, God's law. That's the well that has made our country so great. But just as the Philistines filled in the ancient wells in Isaacstein, the culture today is filling in wells that have made our country great. Our Charter of Rights and Freedoms that allow us to run our homes, the education system, the government, our legal system, these are founded on biblical principles. The water or these, pardon me, are the wells, so to speak, that the water was drawn through to benefit society. Every single one of these, our educational system, our legal system, our social system, these are the wells that we have filled in, to, and they're, it's actually preventing access to the thing that would sustain society, which is truth and reality as defined by God, God's law. We've come, I think, culturally to accept all the material that's been thrown on top. In many cases, the church has stood, stood idly by as this has taken place. We believe cultural ideologies. We buy into philosophical ponderings more than we believe doctrines. We fill in the ancient wells of God's truth and turn to philosophers more than to God's word. More Christians, I, I think, probably listen to Jordan Peterson than read their Bible. I know you're thinking, is nothing sacred? I like Jordan Peterson too, okay? But not as much as I like the Word of God. We believe, we've bought wholesale into this lie that education is neutral, and we inadvertently fill an ancient well. We allow godless ideologies to train our children's minds we allow the school system to counter the truth of reality as defined by God, as if the truth of how reality works could somehow not be attached to God, the one who made reality. The scriptures say, the beginning of all wisdom and understanding is the fear of the Lord. So how can we remove the fear and instruction of the Lord from our school system and expect our, like, and claim that that's neutral? We believe that there's things that God rules over and Things he doesn't, so we've allowed these wells to be filled in. We give appointed men jurisdiction over things that are rightfully God's. And we forget that there is no sacred, secular divide. Jesus declares mine over all of it. 
We allow the powers that be in the surrounding culture to tell us what we can do, what we can say, what we can believe in our workplaces, in, in our homes, but even in the church. Today, the government can seize your kids if you don't agree with their gender ideology. They can take away your degree, and they can take away your job if you resist the garbage that they're tossing down the well. And in many of these cases, the church has stood idly by because we bought into the lie that there's things that aren't God's. We've given these wells over, and the culture around us has gladly filled them in for us. And then we look around and go, why is there a famine? Because we gave them the source of water. And as far as I can see, I think the church in Canada, church in the world at this point in time, has two choices. One, we can either allow the lion to dry up, and we can go to Egypt along with the Philistines for refreshment. Or we can do what Isaac did and we can get about the business of redigging these ancient wells. Our job, I, I would argue, is to dig them out. This is the job of every Christian. This is the job of Christianity. This is the job of the church is to dig out the rubble that has been poured down the wells and is choking the supply of water. This is a task that is a generational work. We see Abraham dig it and then his son come back and dig it again. This is a task that we're gonna have to keep doing, that we're gonna have to train our kids to do because there's always gonna be Philistines trying to dump junk down the well. We need to contend for these wells locally in our government, provincially, nationally in our government, in our, in our regional educational system, in our national education system, in the health system. Now, I'll say this, I don't think Christianity is a political movement, but it's not all political. It's not non-political. It has things to say that need to come to bear on everything. We need to redig ancient wells, the right to rule our own home. The right to uh, teach the word of God in church, to hold classical positions within the church. There, there's nothing in the whole of creation over which Jesus does not claim supremacy. And so there's nothing in all of creation over which the truth of God's word should not be brought to bear. And we need to go about redigging these ancient wells in order that that life-giving water might be accessed again for future generations, for our own children, for ourselves, for physical flourishing, for spiritual flourishing. It involves that we get back to that life-giving water. And again, as we go about this work, we should expect opposition. We should expect it. It shouldn't make us flee. It should keep us going. Look at, look at what this says. So Isaac departed. He encamped in the valley of Gerar, settled there. He dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father. He's doing a generational work. We need to keep doing the same task too. He dug again the wells which the Philistines had stopped and he gave them the names that his father had given them. He's reestablishing the thing that his father did, the reasons he did it. But when his servants dug in the valley and found a well, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with them, and they came and said, the water's ours. So he called the name of the well a sec. That means contention. They were battling. But he goes on, he digs another one. They quarreled after that also. They named it Sitna, which means enmity. And, and he moved on from there. He dug another one, but they didn't come and quarrel over it. He called its name Rehoboth, saying, for now the Lord will make room for us. We shall be fruitful in the land. This name Rehoboth, it means basically land to thrive in. So we should expect opposition is what we're seeing as we go about this work. But as we go about it, we also need to remember that this Water. This is how we will endure the opposition. This water that is at the bottom of this well is what the world needs. It's what we need. That's how you willingly face opposition. There's no other water. There's nowhere else to go for water. So we've got to keep digging it. There are generations of people who come after us who need access to this. What we'll see here as we read on in the story in the coming weeks, is it's through this digging, redigging of the wells that the people of God actually come to flourish. This is what allows them to dwell in the land. And I would say it's the same thing 
that will lead to the people of God flourishing today. And I, I want to conclude by pointing out um, one last thing. This isn't just an issue out there. These aren't just cultural problems. I, I think this issue starts inside of the church. I think the church is filled in its own well. The wells that watered the fields of generations of people who have come before us, we have carried the Philistine garbage into the church and dumped down the well. We've rejected the truth. These wells have been filled in within the church. The great historic doctrines that have served the church for centuries have been filled in and we need to redig these. We need to dive back into these ancient truths contained in this book. We, we need to learn the ancient truths about who we are, how God created the world, how it's created to operate it, what we're here for, because we've lost track of it, and we're believing kind of some alternate ideologies. We're not marching according to the instructions of this book anymore. We need to reacquaint ourselves with the truths and the doctrines contained within it, the, the doctrine of the depravity of man, God's righteous judgment, eternal damnation, the salvation that's available to all through grace alone, by faith alone, in the person of Christ alone. We need to stand on the doctrines of sola scriptura, meaning that the Bible alone is our source of truth. The church needs to look to this before philosophy, before any new cultural ideology. This is our source of truth. This is the water at the bottom of the well. This is what the Philistines are trying to cover up. We cannot allow it to take place. And it's a work that begins here. It's a work that begins right here in our own hearts. Jeremiah spoke to this. He said this, My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. They've stopped going to that well, and instead what they've done, they've carved broken cisterns that can hold no water. We've carved little holes, try to collect whatever falls. We've stopped going to the deep well, said we're just, we've got some lame little cup we've carved, but we're trying to collect whatever the culture will toss us. It can't sustain us. We need to go back to this. And I want to I close us with three questions. Just first, church, if you would be honest with yourself, where are you drawing water from? Where are you refreshing? Until the church's thirst can only be quenched with what God alone can provide, we are powerless to change a culture. This is a work that begins inside of the church, but it's one that cannot stop there. We need to be about the business of redigging the ancient walls, not, or wells, not just for ourselves, but so that we could be blessed to be a blessing to all. So that this country, the foundations it was founded on, the wells that watered the land for the last 150 some odd years would be available again for the generations that will come after us. And so with that in mind, I want to ask you a second question, which is, why has God placed you where you are? Really, where has he placed you? Take a look at it. We want to run from that all the time. I want to make the argument that God's placed you somewhere on purpose. Perhaps you want to run from your situation because you're supposed to redig an ancient well in it. And that leads into the third question is, how can you be about this work right where you are? What wells does your location give you access to? Where, where, what's your field of work? What do you see in your neighborhood? What do you see in society? And how can you bring the word of God, the kingdom of God, to bear on that realm? How could you spend your life for the sake of the generations that will come after you redigging these ancient wells? Praxis, I want to call us all to this task. And as we do this, I want to commend to us this week, as you think and meditate on this, Isaiah 58. Great section of text. Oh, I couldn't dive into it because I'll get way too nerdy and I'll spend too long in it. 
Go buy yourself a fancy Starbucks, spend half an hour, read through it. But I want to put two verses from it up on the screen, which I think speak to us in this season as we, we go about this work of redigging the ancient wells in the midst of a land full of famine. It says this, the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places. We have an assurance in the middle of this. He will make your bones strong. Why do we need strong bones? To stand up for this fight. You will be like a well-watered garden, church like a spring of water whose waters don't fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. And that line just cuts me to my core. Do you know why? Because that's the, that's the job of being Jesus to the world. This is what Jesus is. He's the repairer of the breach. There's a breach between our culture and that life-giving water. This is the work Jesus came and did. He redug the ancient wells. When we were separated from God, enemies of God, he came down, gave his life to the task of reconciling us to the Father. So this work, it, it's a work that points to Jesus, and it's one that we can only do by his power. I want to invite us to stand. We're going to respond here in a minute, but I want to pray over us because I really do believe there's a task that the Lord has for us. Every single one of us. If you're here and you're a Christian, we have a, a well to be digging for the sake of those in this generation and the ones to come. And so I just want to pray for us now. Father, would, would you come by your Holy Spirit and reveal to us where we as your church have accepted the junk that's been tossed down the well? Would you begin a work right here in our midst, in our church, in our own hearts of, of ideologies, philosophies, concepts, whatever it might be, whatever we've turned to instead of this life-giving water, we pray that you would come reveal it to us. And then as we dig it out, we pray that you would refresh us, your people, by your spirit and your word so that we could be, we could be refreshed, but so that we could be a blessing to the culture around. And we pray for our great country as you told us to. We pray that the foundations of many generations would be raised up, that the breach that exists would be repaired that these broken cisterns that the culture has turned to would be revealed for what they are. And once again, your kingdom would be bought, brought to bear on every facet of society in our great country. This is a work upon which we are wholly dependent on you, Holy Spirit, to empower us for. And I pray as we, as we move into a time of response right now, would you reveal to us what that task is, how we can go about laboring, with the future generations in mind. We pray in your great name, the power of the Spirit. Amen.